and welcome back to our podcast, Making Sense of Science, the show that features interviews with leading experts in health and science about the latest developments and the big ethical questions. I'm your summer host, Emily Mullen, editor of Leaps.org, and today we're going to talk about where we stand on vaccination and how to reach the vaccine hesitant. I'm honored that my guest today is Jessica Malati Rivera, an infectious disease epidemiologist and science communication lead at the COVID Tracking Project. Thanks so much for joining us. No problem at all. (laughs) So COVID cases have dramatically dropped off. At the time of recording this podcast, new infections have hit the lowest point in the U.S. since the pandemic began. Do we still need shots in arms at this point? Is it important that we continue to get people vaccinated? Yes. I mean, it's a great question. And I think that there is now evidence to show that these vaccines are working to protect some of our most vulnerable people. I mean, if you look at it's not just cases that are down, everything's down. Hospitalizations are down, even deaths are down. And we started to see the fruit of those vaccines among the most vulnerable populations early on, as we saw that deaths in long term care facilities and deaths among people over 65 dramatically reduced. And we can thank vaccines specifically for that. That said, transmission is still they're still circulating virus in the community, and we need to make sure that everybody is protected. And so that's why we are not quite over, uh, you know, the finish line yet. We need shots in arms so that everybody can be protected, especially in light of variants. Just over 50 percent of eligible Americans are now fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Is that enough to protect us against this new Delta variant we're hearing about, which is rising in prominence in the U.K.? No, it's not enough. I mean, 50% is definitely a milestone that we should celebrate, and I'm thrilled about that. I think that we often forget populations like the pediatric population, which is quite large, as they are just now becoming eligible for the vaccines. We now can vaccinate 12 to 15-year-olds, and then eventually, probably later this fall, uh, 5 to 12, or you know, even below that after, um, after some fall months. But I think that it's important to know that the variants are spreading because they are infecting new bodies. Right. Viruses replicate inside bodies and they mutate as they replicate. We can prevent that from happening. We can outsmart the process of more variants and infections from the current variants by slowing the the, the way of transmission and vaccinating people. When you do that, we essentially create dead ends for the virus. Now, what about this idea of herd immunity that we keep hearing about? Does it matter if we reach herd immunity And what threshold do we need to achieve to get there? I'm guessing we're not there yet. Yeah, we're not there yet. But I also think it's important to recognize that herd immunity is not a moment in time. It's not going to be at the point in which we vaccinate the 300th million person in the United States. I think that we need to think about this kind of like a dimmer switch and not an on-off switch. And also be comfortable with the fact that we don't know because we've never been post-COVID, right? We know herd immunity thresholds for diseases because we've been post them. You know, we know that when when herd immunity for when vaccinations drop below 95% for measles, for instance, we start to see outbreaks of cases, which is why we need at least 95% coverage at all times. We haven't really seen kind of retrospective uh, what it looks like post-vaccination for COVID. And so we estimate that it's probably going to be at least 80% of the population fully vaccinated for us to start seeing the kind of really, really radical shifts in transmission in the United States and, and over the, overseas. What do you think are the main challenges with getting the remainder of the population vaccinated, which is still quite a large uh, group of people? Yeah, I mean, so we have to, you know, 
think about the fact that the pediatric population is a good chunk of people in the U.S. Uh, several millions of people are below the age of 18. And uh, we are slowly getting that population vaccinated as they become eligible based on their age groups. Not to mention the fact that there are a number of folks who are hesitant about the vaccine, which is absolutely fair. It is legitimate to be hesitant. It is legitimate to be concerned, to be weary, because pandemics are scary. They've just experienced one of the most disruptive things that probably can ever happen to humans with a global pandemic. And so I have a lot of empathy and a lot of patience to help people navigate this infodemic that we're in. Infodemics doesn't always just mean misinformation and disinformation. It just means a ton of information to have to parse through and make informed choices. And so because of that, we are not done with vaccine communication strategies and campaigns to help people understand, like, what are the barriers that are keeping you from making this choice? Um, and that's why we need to not rush through the finish line. We need to, like, make sure that everybody's, acro- like, crossing it, you know? Right. What do you think is the biggest misconception or what's the biggest misconception you've heard or seen or maybe uh, a friend or a family member has said about the COVID-19 vaccine? Oh, gosh. I mean, I could go on for hours about this, but I'll start by saying that many of the claims that have been made are pretty unoriginal in the sense that they are just basically copy pasted from previous anti-vaccine playbooks. Um, You know, lots of vaccines in the past have been, you know, accused of doing things like long term damage or causing infertility. And there's just no biological evidence of that whatsoever with the COVID-19 vaccines or even previous vaccines. Um, The the COVID-19 vaccine does not remain in the body very long. It's probably in the body doing what it does, which is training your body to have memory and antibodies so that if it sees this antigen again, it responds. Um, It's in your body between 48 to 72 hours. The only thing that remains is a trained immune system. And I think that people often conflate the time at which it took to develop it with the uncertainty of what it could do in the future. But really, we have decades of biological evidence to show how disease, how vaccines metabolize in our bodies and what they actually do to our bodies and how they don't do things like alter our DNA or cause autoimmune issues or cause ADE or all these claims that are intended to cause fear and doubt about the science. And I can understand some hesitancy around the vaccine because it, it does seem like it was created so quickly, but at the same time, that was the point of Project Warp Speed, correct? Yeah, yeah. Operation Warp Speed was kind of the best case scenario for a group science project, right? So many, if, if you've ever been in research, I myself have been in a lab before that has struggled to get funding. It is incredibly frustrating to not be able to have the funding to advance the next stage of your research. Clinical trials often get stuck in what's bureaucratic red tape of not having funding to advance the next clinical trial, not having interest in enrollment. I mean, these vaccine trials had people on wait lists because they wanted so badly to participate so we can get this data, so we can find a solution. And it started because we had decades of a runway paved already literally decades of research on everything from coronaviruses to mRNA technology. So this didn't come out of thin air. It wasn't hasty. It wasn't rushed. It was kind of the best case scenario of all hands on deck, a consistent stream of a lot of money to make sure that there was no you know, hiccups, a ton of interest, and a lot of a lot of times people forget the fact that because there was so much COVID spreading around, we were able to kind of reach those endpoints, which are like the goals of the clinical trials. We were able to reach those endpoints so quickly because so many people were getting sick. So 
the data, um, you know, when we talk about, I think a lot of people also will say, oh, it's just, it's not even authorized. It's an EUA and not an FDA approval. If you actually look at the requirements, they're no different, right? We're talking about the same trial uh, standards for safety and efficacy, the same um, uh, expectations for data transparency, the same expectations for volume of data. And now that we've got all that data, the six month data for both Pfizer and Moderna, at least, they're now being uh, reviewed for FDA approval, which I'll go ahead and also say, sometimes the, if you compare the data that's been submitted for previous things to the FDA, it's less than what's been submitted for COVID. Right. And as you mentioned, one of the reasons why the clinical trials for these vaccines have been able to um, really go at an expedited fashion is because we had so many people getting sick, which was unfortunate, obviously, from a public health standpoint, but for vaccine development, actually kind of a good thing because you had a lot of people who were eligible to get in these clinical trials uh, because the virus was, was spreading everywhere so fast. And you could really condense that timeline for a clinical trial because it usually takes, like you said, years uh, for a clinical trial to be completed, uh, especially with an infectious disease trial um, for a, a vaccine because you have to wait a long time until a person people get it right would essentially be um, exposed to that pathogen. Exactly. I think that's that's something that people don't think about. Like these weren't challenge trials, right? We weren't infecting people to see how strong the vaccine worked. There was so much virus spreading around that people were still getting sick. But the, the goal of these vaccines, the goal of most vaccines is to do two main things, to keep you out of the hospital and to keep you alive. And as people were still getting the, the virus, whether they were you know on placebo or on the vaccine, we were seeing that this vaccine was doing exactly that that in the clinical trials, nobody was hospitalized who got the vaccine and nobody died. So, you know, that says a lot about what it's like to do something like a clinical trial in the context of a public health emergency. It's a very different situation than a clinical trial that would have happened for an exploratory vaccine when everything's fine and most people are healthy. Now, what about we're hearing about breakthrough cases of COVID? What's happening there? Does it mean that the vaccine is not working? Yeah, so it definitely does not mean that the vaccines are not working. We should remember the fact that the vaccines are not 100% effective. No vaccines really are. Breakthrough cases are to be expected, but the incidence of them is incredibly, incredibly low. They probably make up about 0.1% of vaccinated individuals. And for the most part, those who have a breakthrough case are often experiencing mild or asymptomatic infection. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's something that is necessary in this next phase of the pandemic in the sense that we need to get this data to understand things like vaccine durability and also understand the impact of the variants. But it's also, you know, helpful to understand, too, you know, if and when we need boosters. Right now, we haven't found the need to find uh, to, to use boosters. But like understanding things like breakthrough cases is one of the ways in which we learn that. But it's not something that people should be panicked over. It's why it's so important that most people are vaccinated so that risk run drops even more. So there's been a lot of research around vaccine hesitancy. These are not people who are staunchly anti-vax, but people who might just be hesitant to get the vaccine for one reason or another. They're still unsure. So how do we get through to these types of people? What are some of the known tactics that work? How should I 
or anyone listening to this podcast approach someone who hasn't gotten the vaccine? What should I do or not do? Yeah. So a couple things. I'll start by saying that it's really important to be careful with your language. Even when we talk about vaccine hesitancy, it is an incredibly diverse cohort of people and who have hesitations for a variety of reasons, all of them legitimate, right? You know, to to want to understand more, to make informed choices is a legitimate position to have. But we also have to recognize that there are a number of people who are hesitant because of legitimate medical trauma and medical hurt that's happened, whether they've experienced it directly, um, you know, especially among the black and brown community, or they experienced it historically in their families or generationally. When we talk about things that happened in the past, like Tuskegee, what happened in Puerto Rico with birth control experimentation, what happened with gynecological experiments on black women. So these types of things are all reasons to have pause. And so because of that, we need to understand that it's not a one size fits all message. We need to be careful to not otherize people and group them and make them feel less than or separate from the scientific dialogue. On top of the fact that when we talk, we need to listen first and mostly listen. When people share things that they've heard online, that they've read online, I want the burden of proof to be on them to tell me, where did you find this? I want to understand what your hesitations are. What are your actual fears? And let them do the talking. I want to hear all the reasons why they have those concerns before I start fact-checking and debunking and myth-busting and outdating them, right? That's not an effective tool. What that does is just cause tension and elevation of emotions. And there's already so many emotions involved in vaccine hesitation that I think that one of the ways in which I've seen many breakthroughs happen is to listen first, ask questions, have them do the sharing, and then walk them through how you can either validate their sources or help them find better ones. And we know that there's power in anecdotes because a lot of the tactics on the anti-vaccination side, I don't even really want to call it a side, but among uh you know, a, a small group of people who are uh, vehemently anti-vax, we know that they use anecdotes to get through to people. You know, I had a friend or, or a family member or somebody I know had this horrible reaction to a vaccine and therefore I don't want to get a vaccine or I'm not giving this vaccine to my child. So what do you think about anecdotes and how can we use anecdotes and perhaps storytelling to our benefit to get more people to get the COVID vaccine. Yeah, so anecdotes are extremely powerful and they influence a lot of things. They influence politics, religion, science, vaccines. And so it's a very kind of expected, uh, you know, confounding factor when it comes to trying to understand data and understand truth. And I don't want to discredit anecdotes, but oftentimes if you try to get to the bottom of an anecdote, it's sometimes really nothing more than an anecdote and not based on any kind of truth. I mean, recently I've had people say, I know somebody who's really trusted trustworthy who knows somebody who told them that they are really trustworthy and they got this information about this experience. And um, if you dig deep enough, a lot of times those are not real. However, some anecdotes are legitimate. Some anecdotes of things like vaccine injury, which do ha- which does happen, um, need to be listened to. But for the most part, when it comes to anecdotes that are intended to cause fear, that use superlative language that are very, very inciting of anxiety and panic, um, those are red flags, right? I also think that this has a lot to do with the fact that humans are just really bad at understanding risk, right? They don't know, uh, we're just really bad at knowing the difference between a hazard and a risk. A hazard is something that could cause harm, but a risk is that hazard plus exposure to that, right? So it's like, 
Are you going to get into the ocean with the shark because there's a hazard there? Well, your risk is quite low because the odds of the shark biting you is, you know, super, super, super low. It's the same thing with with, you know, vaccine stuff, right? There's risk in everything. But when you when you compare and look at the data of the actual risk of an adverse event or the actual risk of complication, the odds are in your favor in that you are most likely to be benefiting from this vaccine than being harmed from it. And I think that that kind of calculus often gets flipped when you hear a really scary story that makes people pause. Now, what about people who are thinking, well, I don't need the vaccine. I haven't gotten COVID thus far. I'm not in a high risk group. And there's also a small risk of me landing in the hospital or, you know, most cases of COVID are manageable and have mild and moderate symptoms. I think this um, this approach or, or this line of thinking is, is the hardest for me to, I don't want to say combat, but it's, it's really hard for me to engage with somebody who feels this way because, well, yeah, they, they might not get a, a, a really bad case of COVID, but they might end up at the hospital. It, you know, we, we, we're still learning how this virus works and there is still a lot of uncertainty, I think, in a lot of people's minds. So what would you say to people like that who think, well, there's, there's really no reason for me to get the vaccine because I'm healthy. I'm not in a high risk group. I've been fine so far. And even if I get COVID, it, it won't be that big of a deal. Yeah. I struggle a lot with this too, honestly, Emily, because I find it to be quite selfish, right? It only is considering the individual in that calculation of risk. It's only considering that person and they what they perceive as their likelihood of having a bad outcome, but not including the fact that there are people around them who either can't get vaccinated because they're vac- they're immunocompromised, they're medically fragile, they're an organ transplant recipient, they're on immunosuppressant drugs that need people around them to be vaccinated, or the fact that they can be transmitters of the disease even if they're asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. Like you're not that, that one of the things that's really difficult about communicating public health is the fact that public is at the essence of it, right? It involves everybody in the community. We get vaccines because we do it for ourselves and for our communities. It's very, you know, I think in the very in the beginning a lot of the um, anti-vax sentiment was trying to say, oh, it doesn't even prevent transmission. It absolutely does, which is why we can say it's both beneficial to the individual and to people around them. Now the, the other thing that really gets me about this, too, is the fact that when we talk about our immune systems, you know, our immune systems are as good as we treat them and as we train them. Right. Think about it like your brain. Your brain is an organ. But if you're not feeding it with information, are you going to learn anything? It's kind of a similar metaphor for the immune system. We teach our immune system to recognize things like antigens so that we don't have to get sick with them and say, if you see something that looks like this, you know, be on guard. It's kind of the same way. We get vaccinated because we have immune systems. We get vaccinated because our immune systems are not trained to know what COVID-19 is. And honestly, nobody can predict the kind of outcome that they can have based on any statistics because we have seen people in every age group with every kind of pre-existing or non-pre-existing health condition succumb to this disease. And it's not just death that we're trying to avoid. Death is not the only measure of severity. There are people who have been healthy, who have experienced extremely, extremely debilitating long-term impact and long COVID symptoms. 
I know folks who had asymptomatic infection, <clears throat> excuse me, and then months later are experiencing complications with constant ringing in their ear or issues with heart inflammation like myocarditis. So to say that you'll take the risk um, is just very short-sighted and it's not thinking about the person or the people around them. Um, at an individual level, I feel like there's only so much each of us can do to promote vaccination among our friends, among our family, among acquaintances and people we know on social media, things like that. So we're seeing some st- cities and states offering incentives like free pizza or beer or in Washington state, free joints of marijuana. <laughs> um, <laughs> What do you think about these kinds of incentive programs? Are they working? Are they a good idea? For some, they're working, and I don't have any problem with them. You know, I think that uh, for some people, that's the extra kind of motivation that they needed or that they are compelled by, and I think that's fine. I don't think it's manipulative. I don't think it's anything sinister. I think at the end of the day, we are all trying to end this pandemic. I think there's, there, for some reason, there's folks who continue to accuse us in the scientific community of like never wanting this to end or wanting to just be, you know, living in this misery forever. Like the people who want this to end the most are the people who are not sleeping because we're working on it constantly. And I think that we're trying to find any way we can do that. And one of the ways we can do that, one of the primary ways we can do that is having as many people as possible vaccinated so that transmission can be low and it's not disruptive anymore. There's a lot of concern that at the rate of some communities getting vaccinated, we could see another surge in the fall. And that is very traumatizing to even think about. And I think that whatever it takes to get communities, wherever they are, to be motivated to get the vaccine, I'm all aboard. So besides these incentive programs, what about other ways to get people vaccinated? What do you think we should be doing or could be doing more of to promote vaccination? Yeah, so I think that the work that I am doing like on social media has proven to be incredibly rewarding because I think it's now shown people that science doesn't have to be very intimidating, that it doesn't have to be something that is just for a certain type of person who looks a certain type of way with certain types of degrees. I think that one of the biggest disservice we do is to talk down at people and to dumb things down. And what I try to do is to help elevate people's science and data literacy. And I do that by breaking down the headlines and and demystifying a lot of the information that they're hearing on, you know, social media themselves or on, you know, their podcasts or in their circle of friends. I think that we need to consider that this is one of this this virus has you know more or less touched every person in the world and that it's affected all of our lives I don't think that we should be brushing you know it under the rug to try to get it over I think we should invite people to say look this happened it might happen again because that's kind of how viruses work. Let's all be more informed to understand the impact of mask wearing, the impact of vaccination, the impact of all these small choices that we can make to make our world healthier and safer for everybody. Earlier, you said you mentioned that a one size fits all approach is not going to work to promote vaccination. So what do we need to be doing to reach um, people, say, in rural communities or in inner cities who might not have uh, transportation to get to a vaccine center. I mean, there are so many different groups of people. And like you said, um, there are lots of reasons for vaccine hesitancy, but there are also just access issues. Um, What do you think we could be doing to improve access to the vaccine? 
Yeah, I feel very strongly about vaccine equity and vaccine accessibility. You know, the Biden administration was committed to making sure that 90% of people in the United States were within five miles of a vaccine site, but five miles is a long distance for some people. And that 10% of people, they're in places that we consider vaccine deserts, where it takes a long time to get vaccines to those people. And I think that that's why we need to be very, very committed to what we call the last mile of vaccine transportation, that it actually goes to people and not just sits on a truck or sits in a freezer, right? We, vaccines don't save lives by themselves, a vaccination does. And we do that by increasing trans- transportation access, by giving people free rides. There have been rideshare organizations that have been offering free rides for people to get to vaccine centers. And there's been free public transportation options for folks to get to vaccination centers. Now, at this point, most pharmacies in the United States are offering walk-in appointments. It's no longer this really cumbersome online application thing. I mean, I remember early on when it was available for people in my parents' age group, it was a nightmare to do all that like online stuff. And now you can walk in. And so all of these ways kind of help increase accessibility. We still have a long way to go. I also think about just content accessibility, right? We need to make sure that the messages are in multiple languages with multiple types of uh, delivery so that it's not ableist. If the people who are vision impaired or hearing impaired can have access to this information, it needs to be in Braille. It needs to be with, you know, um, alt text on online so that people can have it read to them. All of these things are on my mind when it comes to how can we make sure that nobody is excluded from this conversation. We also need to empower folks as lay leaders to be advocates for this too. So whether it's training clergy people or religious leaders or barbershop owners or whoever it is in the community that is having regular contact with people in their community to talk about the vaccine, to ask questions, to have town halls, to do whatever it takes so that the conversation doesn't stop online or in closed circles and closed rooms. Yeah, those are all great suggestions. Um, Now, switching gears a little bit, of course, it's the start of summer. Many Americans are getting ready to go on vacation this year after foregoing a summer vacation last year. Um, What safety precautions do people need to keep in mind while traveling this summer? Yeah, so I think that, you know, it's people should take advantage of the fact that if they're vaccinated, their risk is low when it comes to getting COVID and transmitting COVID. So rejoice in that, do some fun things, um, but also be mindful that, you know, your risk isn't zero and we need to make sure that most people are vaccinated. That said, I will always prefer road trips and driving to destinations over flying, but you can fly knowing that you're going to have to wear your mask the whole time in the airport and in the airplane. Um, Just be mindful of your destination too. What is the transmission like there? What is vaccination like there? If you're going across, uh, you know, if you're going overseas, I would be very mindful of what the healthcare infrastructure looks like and what vaccine access looks like so that you're not going into a place um, kind of ignoring your privilege and ignoring any burdens that are present there. Um, You know, I think a lot of people who have kids, I mean, I have kids who are not eligible for the vaccine yet because they're too young, are very curious about what that means for their kids. Can the kids travel with them? Does that mean that they can't be on the plane because the kids aren't vaccinated? I don't think that that means that, but I think it just means that you need to be extra mindful of your kids' risk and that they're going to have to be in masks the whole time. And that when you are, you know, when they're traveling and if you're going to a place where they're not around other people, then they can, you know, take their masks off. But um, it'll get a lot easier later this year to travel with the whole family with less risk once the kids can get vaccinated. But by all means, like we should be having a great summer and going on trips so long as we're being mindful of our individual risk and our community risk. 
Right. I was going to ask you about families with kids who haven't been vaccinated yet. Is it safe for kids to go on vacation or go to summer camp? Uh, What advice do you have for families who are trying to grapple with these decisions right now? Yeah. So I think treat summer camp like treating school. So, you know, a lot of summer camps are doing just day camps and not sleep away and doing things like uh, a testing cadence and mask requirements and physical distancing. And I think that's totally fine. If there was a summer camp that I could enroll my kids in, I would do it. But we just unfortunately don't have access to one nearby that will take us because we're not um, staying here for very long. Uh, and, and all the programs filled up, but I would do it in a heartbeat. And I think that um, when it comes to travel, like just be mindful of your kids. If they are immunocompromised or if they are medically fragile, then I would have less risk involved. And I probably wouldn't hop on a plane with them. If they are generally healthy and pretty amenable to keeping a mask on for several hours, then I would say, yeah, let's, you know, hop on a plane and go to a safe destination where you can keep your risk relatively low there as well. As we see cases continue to decline here in the U.S., we're seeing infections rise in many other parts of the world, including in India and many places in South America. What role do you think the U.S. plays in helping to get the rest of the world vaccinated? Yeah, we absolutely have a moral obligation to make sure that vaccines are available to everybody because the pandemic isn't over until everybody is safe. You know, this pandemic emerged in East Asia and look what it did to the whole world. So we can't ignore the fact that there are outbreaks that are still happening in other parts of the country because it affects everybody. A disease is only a plane ride away. You know, when we think about how easily transmissible and movable these pathogens can be. So um, I just saw a headline yesterday that said that President Biden is committed to buying 500 million doses to uh, deliver to, I think, 100 countries um, in the next two years. And we need more than that. Right. It's going to take billions of doses um, to several places to get on track. I've read some horrible uh, calculations, some estimates saying that some countries will not be fully vaccinated until well into 2023. And I think that is absolutely unacceptable at the pace at which variants are emerging and spreading. Um, we can't turn a blind eye at our neighbors across the world because, you know, we have very much a connected relationship to all of them and need to make sure that everybody is safe. Okay, now, if you would look into your crystal ball, what does the fall look like here in the U.S.? Is it going to be safe for kids to go back to school? What about for workers to go back to the office? Are we going to see a surge in cases? What are the possible scenarios for the fall and then uh, potentially into the winter? So I like to default to cautious optimism, even though I tend to be sort of pessimistic. But on this front, I'm trying to be really cautiously optimistic. And that, well, what I'll say is we should all hold our plans without white knuckle grips, right? We should hold loosely to all these things and understand that anything can change. However, I feel very confident that our holidays are going to look very different this year than they did last year. I feel very confident that my kids and many kids across the country are going to be back in school, probably with masks, which is fine until we get them fully vaccinated. Um, I expect many offices to return to work, but I also expect and have seen many offices be like, if you don't want to, and if you want to continue working remotely, that's fine too. And I am here for that kind of flexibility because I have been a working parent from home well before COVID-19. I've been working from home full-time since 2017. And I am very grateful to see as, as many companies pivot as a result of COVID and say, you know what? 
productivity hasn't declined. In fact, in many cases, it's increased. And then we're going to keep that option. Um, but I do think that a lot of normalcy will be back in our lives come this fall. I think that the more people and the more kids that are vaccinated, more things will open up. Things like sporting events, things like concerts, that's all coming back. And I'm very, very excited for it. But I also understand that we have to be mindful that if certain populations are not fully covered, we can expect to see an uptick in cases possibly this fall. And I'm trying very hard to make sure that we avoid that. Well, thanks so much, Jessica. That was a fascinating discussion and that's lots to think about. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you like this show, follow Making Sense of Science to hear new episodes coming out once a month. If you want to give us feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch through our website, leaps.org, and follow us on Instagram at Making Sense of Science. See you next time.